Has Simon Le Bon ever eaten a bonbon? Did did run 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 did do run run? In the last episode, Katie from Kingston asked what to do with a book of Mormon that she didn't want, how to dispose of that sensitively, but also definitively. We gave her various suggestions. Yeah, we said donate it to someone, basically, like a college or a school. Well, anonymous from the Wasanich and Lekwungen territories, aka Victoria, British Columbia, says, As someone who used to work in a Canadian public library system... I found myself laughing somewhat maniacally when Ollie asserted that there is always a market for used religious texts. Ha ha ha. Ha ha. On my first day of work as a library clerk, I was instructed to never, under any circumstances, accept donations of Bibles and was introduced to Bob, the box of Bibles that we accumulated (laughs) every few weeks and then had to pay to have collected and recycled. I once arrived early to work only to find one of our sweet regulars furtively shoving water-damaged Bibles through the return slot. Wow. When gently confronted, she told me that she didn't want to see them go to waste and didn't know how else to get rid of them. Water damage is a slightly different thing. We were talking to someone who said that they had a pristine copy of a religious text, but I nonetheless hadn't assumed that libraries would get deluged with them. That is quite an insight. Yeah, especially as libraries don't really seem to be inviting donations of shit you don't want. Exactly. Why would you think to give a used book to a library? Like, they're always trying to flog their used books to you. They're known for the hiring out of new books until they get so old that they sell them. You know, I still think, as we were saying last time, that someone somewhere would have a use for these things, but... I suppose the problem is that going to great lengths to populate them about makes it look like you're the evangelist in the first place. Hmm. Whereas you're the person who actually wants to get rid of it. You're not the person who wants to try and go into shop after shop and say, excuse me, would you be interested in taking this? You just want it out of your hands. So I think with this perspective, Katie's thought to make like blackout poetry or do some other kind of arts and crafts projects with the books doesn't seem necessarily such a bad idea after all. Talking of unwanted things, uh, here's an email from B who says, I'm planning my partner's big birthday party on the 29th of March. It's a big one because it's going to be his 60th. The restaurant has been booked, the menu picked, and I am now writing the invitation letter for the guests to come. The problem is, I would really like to ask the people coming not to give my partner gift cards or vouchers because he tends to forget about them. Yeah, I can identify I think most people can. I mean, very few of us have like a special wall chart of vouchers. What an aspirational thing to have. (laughs) He says, I have seen several gift vouchers worth hundreds of euros go to waste just because he didn't realise he got them. Some of the said vouchers were even pre-euro. They live in the Netherlands. That's why he's talking about the euro. But for Mm. international listeners unaware, that takes us back to the turn of the century, basically. Presumably, most gift vouchers have an end limit. Well, even if they don't, there's a chance in the current climate, obviously, that a voucher dated from 1998, the business is likely to have gone under. I am sure that my partner will love getting whatever gifts he will receive on his birthday, including gift cards, but I'd hate to see so much money go to waste. He already has everything he needs, and he can afford to buy what he likes, so it does make it tricky to get him presents. He does, however, get delighted when he's given presents, no matter how random they are. Mm -hmm. So, Helen, answer me this. How do I tell our guests not to give him gift cards without my invitation letter going (laughs) viral on the internet and me being branded a choosing beggar. So like when when someone is like, don't bring anything worth under £200 to our child's birthday. 
Yeah, exactly. I think there are a few options that won't make you go viral on the internet in a bad way. I think one of them would just be uh, no gifts, just yourselves, because some people bring them anyway. So Bob will still have some gifts to delight him. Yeah, but he said that he likes gifts. He says he's delighted, Helen. But that's why I just said some people bring some anyway. So some, yeah, but but what proportion? It's what a big proportion party. of people bring gifts anyway when you say no gifts, please? Well, if it's a big party, say 60 people are going to the 60th birthday and right. 20% of them bring gifts, that's still 12 gifts, which is pretty good gift opening. Fine. You could say no gifts, just charity donations only, but... Bob would love to hear in a card why you chose the charity you chose or just like homemade cards because then he gets the pleasure of opening something but it is of no financial value that B will be worrying about cashing in. But from the sense that we're getting of this man, I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying he wouldn't be delighted to give money to charity. He says Bob's got everything he needs. Yeah, exactly. So he probably likes things, doesn't he? Why am I calling him Bob? He's not called Bob. Bob is from uh, the previous question. <laughs> we can call him Bob. Bob is the bo- the box of Bibles. Okay. I'm g- yeah. I'm g- birthday Bob, the box of Bibles. <laughs> it's fine. We can call him Bob. I was going with that. B says that uh, Bob has whatever he wants. Like he can afford to buy it so he doesn't need presents. So the question is not depriving of Bob of objects because it sounds like he has enough objects. And in the last few years particularly, I've been very conscious most of the people I know have enough stuff. And so... As their birthday tribute, I'll do a donation to a charity. And then I, it feels as tricky as getting a good gift match for them. I think, oh, if I donate to this one, will they think that was good? Or will they think, wow, she's really misunderstood my priorities? Well, indeed. So it still feels like a very personalised gift. You could, I suppose, if he's not the charitable sort, think about the one thing he'd really like that maybe is a big shiny thing that he'd like to unwrap and get everyone to contribute to that specific yes. thing. Oh, so if like Bob would really love some skis. Yeah, or, or, you know, a flight to Australia or something. Right, if you want to contribute to Bob's birthday fund. But then Bob really has nothing to open. Well, skis are not small. Or my other suggestion is that you, be collect all the gift cards and cash them in for him. Yeah, just be his bloody voucher manager. It's not right? that hard. You've clearly got what it takes. Yeah, because you're already obsessing in detail about vouchers. You've put more thought into this than anyone giving a voucher will. Yeah, and... As Ollie mentioned earlier, voucher wall, you can have one of those in your house, make it much harder to forget the vouchers. (laughs) Here's a question from Karis from Acton, who says, A couple of days ago, on my walk to uni, I saw a cat. Did it burst into song and start talking about the jellical ball? Fast forward to me walking home and I see a missing cat poster. I instantly recognised the cat from that morning and was totally certain it was the same cat. I rang the number on the poster and reported where I'd seen the cat and they were so thankful the information because this cat had been missing for two months. But? Fast forward to this morning and I saw the cat again and I have come to the realisation that it is not the missing cat. (laughs) So, Ollie, answer me this. What do I do? Do I ring them and dash their hopes or let this wild cat chase continue? I'm mortified. Please help me. I feel like their hopes are going to be dashed anyway, given that it's not their cat. So either way, it's not your fault. But it is your fault to withhold that information from them now you know. Yes. Their hopes will be dashed, so why would you want to prolong it for them? Like, the only reason for you not to call and tell them is that you are mortified and you don't want to have to have an awkward conversation. But that would be the charitable thing to do, and you were trying to be charitable in the first place. There's, there's no benefit to them of getting their hopes up for longer, only to go and find that that cat isn't their cat and or conclude that their cat isn't in fact alive. Better to tell them now. An Australian radio producer I know had this exact experience where he also grabbed the cat and like 
took it to his home so that he could then return it to the people and then realized it wasn't the right cat. Um, so he got a humorous radio piece out of it. You could do that, Karis. <laughs> well, I suppose he sort of has. <laughs> well, <laughs> he did more sound design than we've done here. <laughs> so was it another missing cat that he found? Or was it just a cat that did belong somewhere that, that he'd then removed from its area? Well, I guess the cat was definitely missing once he'd locked it in his garage. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to be a real hero, isn't it? Just lock up every cat you see, just in case. Then they're all missing cats. And the question, <laughs> is this a missing cat, is nullified. My cats are still, like, at each other, constant, oh, like, really? constantly, like, four times a day. And I sometimes do just think, one of you, why don't you just fuck off? Like, I think <laughs> we're too nice to them. Because wow. they, I, I think we're making life difficult for them. We've got two kids now, themselves make lots of noise, throw toys at them, attack them and everything else. They attack each other. They, they, it's not like they're, they're, they're apartment cats. They go outside. They could go and get rehomed themselves, but they don't. They're having a proper like territorial civil war, and it's never going to end. Well, how long has Alvin been there now? Uh, we got Alvin in May, May 2019. Okay, so Coco's had nearly a year to get to grips with this. Nearly a year to mother him, which is what we were promised. Yeah. No, not everyone <laughs> wants to be a mother, Ollie. That was your presumption. Yes, indeed. Well, I've learned that lesson. Not every old female cat wants like a little young upstart boy cat to mother. That's not how everyone works. <laughs> it's not everyone's dream. Maybe she was happy not having the responsibility. But related to this uh, email, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, about six in the morning. So uh, Toby, my six-month-old son had woken me up because that's what babies do six o'clock in the morning and i sort of went downstairs like half awake to put one of his dirty nappies out on the step well just like open for like a prank for someone to step in <laughs> for the milkman yeah and a cat that i didn't know and had never seen before came running into my house hmm. and it gave me such a shock and i did the modern day version of the found cat poster which is go onto facebook to your local village facebook group and i was about to write I've seen this cat. Does anyone know who it belongs to? And my neighbour had already put a post up 10 minutes before saying, who is this cat? Because he's eating all of my vegetables or whatever. And uh, everyone piled in that day. Like, there must have been 20 responses on my village Facebook group that morning. Like, oh, yeah, 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 that's Simba. Oh, Simba's great. Oh, you've been Simbered. Oh, oh yeah, geez. we all love Simba. And apparently Simba, this this tomcat, his thing is he just, like, walks the length of the village, was like five miles across, goes to different people's homes and jumps <laughs> jumps into their cars, jumps into their open windows. What an absolute prick. Yeah, exactly. Everyone was like, oh, he's so cute. We love it, lol. And I was thinking, I've got two other cats who would either tear him to shreds or be torn to shreds by him and two kids. This could go very, very badly wrong for Simba. Well, that would be Simba's comeuppance. I guess. But uh, he was kind of cute. That's what he's relying on. We kept chucking him out and he kept running back in the house again. What do you do? Here's a question from Caitlin in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, with a very arresting opening sentence. She says, I heard in passing that Jeremy Bentham's body is preserved per his wishes mm -hmm. and gets wheeled out for certain university meetings. She has a question which you'll answer, but yeah. just my question quickly. Yeah. Who was Jeremy Bentham? Because I don't know. He was a utilitarian philosopher. He has a sort of... Um Intimate connection with University College London. Don't know how I missed that Netflix series. Uh, he also invented the concept of the Panopticon prison, uh, which is the one where um, essentially there's a sort of central guard post and then every cell has a sort of window facing onto, the, onto that central guard post in a circular arrangement, so the prisoners never know if they're being watched. But he also campaigned against uh, slavery, capital punishment, corporal punishment. Helen, would you know who he was if you weren't 
married to Martin, who's worked at the university. He's I'd heard of Jeremy Bentham before I'd heard of Martin. <laughs> I think partly because when I was six, my uh, best friend at the time lived on a farm named after Jeremy Bentham. He lived on the farm called Jeremy? No, Bentham. Oh, right. That makes more sense. Anyway, I was just representing those who are wondering. Uh, Caitlin continues with these several questions. Helen, answer me this. Is this true? Aren't there health implications to wheeling around an old dead body? Was this in his will? Are they legally bound to do it? Isn't this one of the most selfish requests a person can make regarding their remains? I mean, really? And who the hell can pay attention in any meeting that his body attends? What's the deal with Jeremy Bentham's body? Okay, well, the deal, from what I've seen with my own eyes, is that in the corridors of University College London, there is a wooden cabinet with the seated figure of Jeremy Bentham, and it's essentially Jeremy Bentham's skeleton in some clothes and a wax face because things went a bit wrong with his head. So (laughs) it's, it's sort of like a representative of the corpse of Jeremy Bentham with corpse bits. But as far as I know, they don't move it. Martin, you used to work at UCL. Did the corpse of Jeremy Bentham attend any of your meetings or lectures? He didn't come to any of mine, which I know starting to take us as a bit of a slight. But it looks like a pretty permanent installation of Jeremy Bentham. And also probably if you move him, the whole thing is going to fall apart. No, that's not true. I mean, they move him to clean him frequently. And they've moved him to like MRI him and do sort of different kinds of analysis on him. Yeah, but he's not getting wheeled out to meetings, is he? (sighs) He's getting wheeled for maintenance. They've just moved him to a new place. He's in a kind of a wooden... Imagine like the TARDIS. It was like in a kind of TARDIS. Like uh, a big dark wood wardrobe. Yeah, like Lion with the Witch in the Wardrobe style. Now he's just in a kind of glass box, which is a little more sleek and modern. The only meeting, as far as people know, that Jeremy Bentham has attended was the final council meeting of Sir Malcolm Grant, who was the provost of the college until 2013. So potentially he only goes to one meeting every 150 years? Yeah, just to keep his hand in. I mean, I do know university dons who are alive who <laughs> have that kind of rate. <laughs> so I guess it's consistent. There was definitely rumours like his head got stolen by King's College when there was the, the rivalry between UCL and King's College, which is another London university. So what happened was they, they failed to preserve his head. They were trying this method to desiccate it and it didn't work. Um, so then the head just looked really grim. So they substituted it with a wax head. So do you think he thought that it would look like a skeleton? Because as soon as you said skeleton, it sounded a lot less freaky weird than talking about someone's remains. It's a skeleton inside clothes, so it looks kind of like an automaton at Disney. It just looks like a waxwork. It looks like the kind of thing you'd say at Madame Tussauds if they had Hall of Philosophers or something like that. Yeah, you can't see his bones, you can't see his skin, it's all covered in clothes. It was his plan that his body would be what is called an auto-icon, and it would be preserved in this way after he died. I'm sort of curious as to why Jeremy Bentham would have wanted to be an auto-icon. Because he left quite specific instructions in his will about how his body was to be prepared and how it should be sitting in a chair and uh, which suit it was going to wear and things like that. But not so much about the why. Part of the corpse thing was more to troll the church because I think at the time there were a lot of fees associated with burial and uh, Bentham... I don't. I can't quite remember whether he was a full-on atheist or just broadly anti-church in his philosophies. So, in part, it's considered a troll of the church that he was like, "I'm not going to give the church any more money after I die." It's choosing the suit that I would find particularly difficult. Oh, as yeah. Well. I mean, I know people tend to get buried in some clothes. I guess the decision is the same whether you're on public display or not. Well, but... it's different, isn't it? Because, like, if you are not on public display, then you'd be like, "Well, he loved he loved that pair of pajamas." 
put them in those pajamas. Yeah. I think the thing with suits is just they don't change that much. So the style doesn't look that out of date, even if the suit is right. 100 years old. So it's probably a good plan. Yeah, I think I'd go suit. And also, would you be concerned about like uh, underwear and things like that? Least of my concerns, I think. Well, it depends. I mean, if it's a sort of a, a record for like future historians to be like, oh, this is what people actually wore and this is what the material was like and those sorts of things that you can't get from just photographs here, yeah, maybe I'd wear the you know, socks, and, socks and shoes and pants. Would they be representative pants, as in, you know, ones that you would have worn on a daily basis, i.e. already in a pretty hideous state by the time your body is being stuffed into them? I have pretty good pants. Or would they be a clean pair? I wear clean pants. What are you trying to say? Like, everyone's got pants in their drawer that they really like wearing that are 10 years old. Would you want those to be the ones that are still... No, I'd, I'd get ones that are close to the beginning of the cycle at the end. I okay, mean, well, put that in your will. I'm going to have to be very specific, otherwise Ollie's going to put me in some dishcloths. <laughs> I've got a question. Then email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Here's a question from Jim who says Whilst recently re watching Ocean's Eleven, I couldn't help but see lights everywhere. Ollie, answer me this. How many light bulbs are there in the whole of Las Vegas? So I assume he's including just all the domestic areas, which are just normal homes. This really sounds like a Google interview question, doesn't it? How many, how much would you charge to clean all the windows in Seattle? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's crucial to define what he does mean by Las Vegas, because even if he does mean all the suburbs and everything... Um, it's the fastest growing city in Nevada, so it would be yeah. really quite difficult to get that statistic. 2.7 million people in the metro area. Right. So without doing exponential mathematics, he's already making it impossible to answer. Mm. Do you count the Neon Museum as well? <laughs> um, that really skews the statistics. So mm-hmm. I've actually assumed the opposite. He is watching Ocean's Eleven. I've assumed he actually just means what tourists think of as Las Vegas, which is the Strip and and possibly Fremont Street that is basically like an add-on to the Strip. Because Fremont Street has been recently redeveloped, there is a statistic on that, mm. so we can do some exponential mathematics to the rest of the Strip from there. How exciting. So there are 12 million lights. Uh, they are LED lights oh, cool. on Fremont Street. Mm. The Strip is... I'd estimate about twice the size of Fremont Street. It's not as dazzling because the whole point of Fremont Street is you go there to see a light show. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think reasonably conservative mathematics, bearing in mind the huge size of the hotels and casinos, so within each hotel and casino, Mm. there's obviously hundreds of thousands of light bulbs in all the rooms and everything. And also electronic billboards and shit. Right. Uh, So I think reasonable to say, take the Fremont Street number and multiply it by three. And then you get to around 36, 37 million. I mean, what's a few million between friends? You might be talking 40 million, but that's the kind of number of light bulbs in Las Vegas. Well, in the tourist bits of Las Vegas. In the bit that most people listening to this think of as Las Vegas. There is more to Las Vegas than that. Shout out to Herbs and Rye and Clark Terrace, where I had the finest steak of my life. Uh Nonetheless, I'm going to say 40 million. If there's 2.7 million people in the metro area, and let's say, for the sake of argument that they have four light bulbs each yes. in their domestic situations as well. Mm-hmm. So that's not even counting. That's very like... conservative. Okay, I mean, how, how many, many light bulbs do you have at home? I don't have a home. Okay, none. You're <laughs> no, a bad but, example. But I'm thinking like if you're sharing a home with in your someone. your storage facility. Ten. Okay, to make it mathematically easy, ten light bulbs per person, because I'm assuming some of them share the light bulbs, you know, yeah, if they sure. cohabit. And that's not even the, the visiting population in the hotels. Right, so that gets you to 20 million before you've even taken right. in the big hotels. Let's, and Let's then. say 30 million domestic light bulbs. Yeah, which added to my 40 million gives you 70 million. Are you including cars? 
I'm not including cars because that feels like the sort of, okay. uh-huh, but have you considered on the end of a riddle? Like yeah. cars are transient <laughs> transport, so no, I'm not including yeah. cars. Then I didn't even think of commercial premises. So like if you've got 2.7 million people, all the businesses serving them that aren't even the strip businesses because like, uh-huh. if you live there, you don't care. Uh-huh. But are you including the 39 lamps that are used to create the beam of light emanating from the Luxor Pyramid, the strongest <laughs> narrow beam in the world? That changes everything. Are you? Are you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But are you including, <laughs> Helen, the 89 light bulbs that feature on the iconic Welcome to Fabulous Luxor? Vegas sign. Yes, I did include you, those. Because oh, okay, <laughs> uh, nine people live in the sign, so that's their ten light bulbs. <laughs> At least you've shown you're working. <laughs> Do you know there's a guy trying to sell the bulbs from the Welcome to Las Vegas sign? The used bulbs. They're really less impressive individually than together. They are bulbs that you can buy from uh, I can't remember what the US equivalent of B&Q is, but like a DIY store. Really like Home Depot or something. Yeah, exactly. You they're could not special buy- bulbs. Well, they're special because they've been in the sign, but they're yellow. But otherwise, they're just screw-in light bulbs. So you can get wow. yellow screw-in light bulbs from Home Depot. So you could make your own Welcome to Vegas sign <laughs> or you know, Welcome to Wally Man's House sign. Could someone just buy a load of light bulbs from Home Depot and be selling them as if they had come from the Welcome to Vegas sign? Well, someone could. And that's why this person, who, if you go to their website, which is, you know, buythelasvegassign.com or something, mm. uh, gives you a certificate of authenticity. It's a souvenir. It has no practical application. Who, He's honest about that. Who has endorsed the certificate? Um, in fairness, the, the people who monitor the sign. So there's there's a company that are who are charged with replacing the light bulbs in the yes. sign every week, and they fill out a form and say, yes, we took this light bulb off on the 10th of January. It's an official Welcome to Las Vegas used light bulb. Every week? Yeah. No. Yeah, but it's, you don't want to go to that sign and one of the light bulbs is out. No, but it's just still it's a very short-lived light bulb. It's probably the least wasteful thing about Las Vegas, and yes, actually this guy true. at least is recycling the bulbs. You know, they have a second life. It seems like a bit of a nails of the true cross kind of business. I stayed in the Riviera, mm. which uh, was one of the iconic casinos, like founded by mobsters. Sinatra uh-huh. played there, Liberace opened it, the whole bit. Does this mean by today's standards it's kind of Bayesian drab? It's demolished. Oh. I found out in the course of researching this question that recently it's been demolished to make way for an extension to the convention centre. But it's just so interesting that in Vegas they create these huge things and then just like 10 years later they're gone. I think also a lot of them feel temporary. It feels like it was easier to build a new hotel in like 2000 than to do up a hotel from the 80s. So they built it from scratch, but it also was built not to last. And it is funny, isn't it, as well, that hotels that were opulent and luxurious in Mm. 15 years ago wouldn't carry that connotation now. People would feel like they're a bit dated. It's like so sad how quick the cycle is. I must say the Riviera was an absolute shithole, so I'm not surprised. I mean, it would have cost a lot of money to refurbish and it had asbestos and it had a really seedy past as well, which, like I say, is kind of cool in Vegas history terms, but actually, like, you know, people died there. I'm not sure you, you know... People expect a level of luxury and comfort and size of hotel room, don't they, as well? Yeah. Which, the, with that floor space, you couldn't provide without massively restructuring it. I remember you saying you stayed in the Luxor and it was a bit shabby. When was that? Yeah, that was like over 10 years ago, so right. it's really... But the Luxor only opened in 1993 and it was already shabby when you stayed in it over 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, I think the Luxor is just a terrible design. I mean, it's very striking. Like, if you haven't mm. seen it, it's a it's it's in the shape of an Egyptian pyramid, but it's made of black mirrored glass. And it has this beam of light coming out the top of it. It's a bit Illuminati, isn't it? I know that my baby is the absolute best. I put Facebook photos up daily and my friends are impressed. Apart from ones who block me because they're jealous. Because their babies are so ugly. Well, why not build a gallery of your kid on Squarespace with special pages for its cute feet and cute hands and cute face so my Facebook feed won't have your kid all over the place. He looks like a scrotum. 
Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring Answer Me This. And for creating uh, a new range of templates for 2020. Really? Yeah. So if you've given up your old template for Lent, (laughs) I've given up sidebars. A traditional Christian activity. It's not enshrined in the Bible, but the Bible was written longer ago than Squarespace has existed. And if you are thinking, I'm not sure I'm really getting the full benefit out of this template, like it seems to do lots of things, but I'm not sure how to use it all. They help you with that as well. They have live webinars so you can train how to use the websites too. Um, Not that it's difficult in the first place. So you can go to squarespace.com slash answer and browse their library of these award-winning designs, choose some that you like. And then if you like what you've built and you want to sign up, you can get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code Answer. Answer. Here's a question from Dominic from London who says, On a rare trip to the National Portrait Gallery in an attempt to be cultured and actually visit a museum after living in London for nearly four years. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? Locals do go less than tourists. Because you can go anytime, so you go no time. I noticed something unusual about the pictures within. They're all portraits. What the fuck? This is... They've all got people in them. Um, Actually, they haven't, have they? Because some of them are portraits of animals, to be fair. Uh, Whether it is a group picture or a solo moment, I wondered why the pictures wouldn't look me in the eye. It took you four years to come and visit us, Dominic. (laughs) Yeah, we're spurning him. I think maybe Dominic spent too much time watching Scooby-Doo and he expects the pictures to follow him around as he walks around the gallery. (laughs) Um, So, Helen, answer me this. Why do all slash most portraits have the subject looking to the right or left, never straight on. It's not never straight on because some of them are straight on. I would say from experience, which is obviously less than someone who's got a piece in the National Portrait Gallery, but not none, it's a lot harder to get an interesting kind of dynamic of someone's face if they're straight on and like get good lighting and stuff. Whereas from an angle, even a slight angle, you have a lot more of their lines and planes to play with and the way the light is striking their face. And more importantly... It creates a sense of depth in the picture, yes, which wasn't really a thing in paintings until the 14th century. The Italian architect Filippo Brunellesco stumbled upon perspective while he was overseeing the construction of a building. And before that, like paintings were quite flat, so dimensions for the work were created by height and width, but it all just seemed like on one plane. But by like tilting someone slightly, you get the feeling that their nose is closer to you, the back of their head is further away, and that makes them seem a lot more real, a lot more substantial. But also, you as the viewer are observing them. Like, that's the point of a portrait, isn't it? You're supposed to be thinking, who was this person? What did they represent? What do they think? And there's something disconcerting about someone looking right at you whilst you're making notes on them. Yeah. I noticed this, you know, if occasionally, if you're watching like a paper review on TV or something, there was a lady doing it on Andrew Marr the other day, where whilst they're reading the papers, they'll look up at the camera and sort of unintentionally end up looking straight down the barrel of the lens. Do you know what I mean? You ever seen that? Someone doesn't know they're doing it. Yeah, you're not supposed to. Yeah, when you're watching at home, you're just like, whoa, stop doing that. Don't break the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> Eye contact is hard, isn't it? It can be aggressive. It's suddenly like Dale Winton in Trainspotting, isn't it, when they're talking directly to you. Um, and I think that there's something of the genesis of that in portraiture as well. Like, you're supposed to be working out what you think about this person. You can't do that if you're worried what they think about you. Yeah. I wonder whether some of it as well is just... That's a very, very specific angle. So if you've got someone sitting for you, you and they have to be even more in the same place relative to each other than you would if you were slightly side on. Yes. I feel like it's a little easier to fudge an angle if something changes than it is 
head on. Yeah, and also I wonder whether their facial expression is more likely to change as well when they're sitting for you, if they're looking at you. Because they might be responding to you, laughing, asking you questions, getting angry, needing the toilet. If you have a live sitter, because I guess, you know, if it's a photo of someone, they could be staring at you head on from the photo. But again, a lot of photos, the face might be slightly tilted and the eyes are staring straight at you. Yeah, And I wonder how much of that, you know, the fact that in photo technology, even you tend not to see direct on pictures comes from the history of portraits being sat for. Like if that hadn't happened first, would there be more photos of people front on? I'm not sure because the same things apply about shadow and light. and stuff. Yeah, right. I think also, I mean, going back to what you jokingly said about the Scooby-Doo portrait eyes following around the room, that is a deliberate technique in painting and not that they like (laughs) literally move but there is a bit of that optical illusion that can be provided with paint and a lot of painters are capable of doing it and maybe that is harder to do when the eyes are centered yes and it only works when you're right in front of them but if they're on a tilt there's maybe a wider range where it still feels like someone's looking at you yeah i guess when when art galleries were a bigger thing or or when frescoes and stuff drew queues of people to go and look at them not just a select few you wouldn't be able to guarantee a spot in front of the painting would you like you could be up against the back and the sides and you want to make sure that you're still engaging with it there's something called the ubiquitous gaze the eyes of a painting where it feels like wherever you are in the room that you're making eye contact with the painting i find even when i'm using facetime that it's quite disconcerting when you are actually looking straight at the person looking at you yeah you end, i don't know if you do that, but i end up moving the phone around so that people are looking at my profile slightly Isn't everyone kind of looking at the photo of themselves when they're on FaceTime, though? I'm glad you said it. Why is that? (laughs) Why is that? Because I'm really not bothered, usually, what people... Like, when when I'm sitting in a cafe, I'm not looking in a mirror all the time to see what am I looking like. Yeah, right. But, like, it's literally like holding up a mirror to your face for the duration of a 20 or 40-minute conversation. So it's sort of hard not to look at yourself, isn't isn't it, in that context? I find, weirdly, when it's on a desktop computer, I don't do that as much. Uh, I guess because the screen's bigger, so the real estate of the other person's face, I can line it up more with my face and I'm not holding it up. It's when I'm holding the phone that I look down at my own face more. Well, also, isn't it with a desktop, you can be sure of the angle, whereas if it's something that you're moving around, then you might look like an absolute plum from some angles. You're subconsciously checking. Yeah. Yeah. How many chins? (laughs) I was on holiday recently in the UAE, and from there, you cannot do live video calls because they've stopped that being. Wow. The government have clamped down on you being able to do that without a VPN. Interesting. But what you can do, weirdly, is film a video and then send it to someone on WhatsApp, even though effectively you're doing the same thing, just not a live conversation. Right, so it's like the old push-to-talk messages. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, my mum wanted to see the grandkids, so I did a video of me and Harvey in the bath. And I was filming it and I was looking so hard at Harvey, it was only after I'd sent it that I thought... Fuck, have I put my dick in there? <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> I had to watch it back. Because we were both in the bath and I was holding the phone between my knees, you know. And I was like, that that could have gone very, very wrong. But luckily, I was focused on my child. She's seen it all before, yeah. haven't She's seen it before, but it's been 30 years. <laughs> I, still think, I still think no one necessarily wants that sprung on them. There's that truly awful portrait, uh, in my opinion, of Kate Middleton in the National Portrait Gallery, where she is uh, face on. And uh, okay. it is a little bit like in Ghostbusters 2, the big portrait of uh, Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's got that kind of vibes. Hello, I'm the monk out of 90s band Enigma. Helen, answer me this. Why I Oh, 
What was that all about? A reminder at this juncture that you can buy our first 200 episodes. Those are the first five years of Answer Me This work. And also, actually, the first nine years of our Best Of collections. Ooh. Um, and you can buy those for just £1.99 each. Like one of those little cereal sampler packs where you get eight tiny boxes of Kellogg cereal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you think, wow, I am going to commit to some Cocoa Pops. Full size. <laughs> Uh, what is this miracle website of which I speak? It is answermethisstore.com. That's where to go. Um, you can buy most of our stuff on uh, Apple and Amazon as well, but we get less money if you do it that way. They get more. They get more. They've already got more, though. <laughs> but even if you do want to use those services rather than buying it from us directly, the links to that too are at answermethisstore.com. So please go there and fill your boots. Phil from Folkestone says, Ollie, answer me this. What is the Nationwide Building Society logo meant to be? I can see there's a bit of house in it, and the sun perhaps, but the perspective seems all wrong, and as everything is blue, it's difficult to differentiate between the component parts. I agree. I I think it's possibly the worst logo on the British High Street, the Nationwide Building Society logo. How dare you? It's, it's, (laughs) It's pretty poor. It's fine. Who gives a shit? It's Well, look, it's sort of charmingly retro, I guess that it hasn't changed for so long. But, I mean, actually, genuinely... I mean, I have an account with Nationwide, but I thought twice about it. I did genuinely think, like, if they haven't got the money to get a new logo every five years... <laughs> well, why would you want that? Because people recognise a thing. There's probably still people reeling from logos that changed in the 90s. Okay, I think it's ugly, and I think it's indistinct, as Phil is suggesting. So if you haven't seen it, he describes it quite well. There, There is a house. Yes, he's right, it's a house. There are building societies, so of course it's a property. It's a little house at the front. And then he's right that there's something that looks like the sun, but it's blue. It looks like a mill wheel almost. Right. Is it a mill house? Well, I always thought maybe it was a church behind for some reason, which I know is weird because, like, how many people are applying for mortgages on churches? But the implication it was giving to me was the sense of it being indeed a nationwide thing. So there are thousands of villages and towns all around the country. You know, this is Britain, little cottage, church, sun. I thought it was maybe that, but it isn't. Hmm. Hmm. I've looked back to the genesis of the logo, which is 1987 when Nationwide merged with the Anglia Building Society. If you Google now Nationwide Building Society logo 1987, uh, you will see that the weird circle that became blue is actually green. Uh, And in 1987 is much more clearly, I would say, an abstract tree. A tree. That didn't occur to me. But I also didn't think it was the sun, given that it's inserted between the buildings. So what did you thought? You genuinely thought mill wheel? Well, I thought it was just a part of abstract art. You know, the houses themselves are non-literal. Yes. Look, it obviously tests well because actually they have subtly updated the logo numerous times over the past 20 years but just never the fundamentals. So they've kept the basics looking like a 1980s design thing, but they actually have spent millions trimming it in silver and making it three-dimensional and stuff. But I just think it's ugly. Don't you think it's ugly? No, I'm fine with it. I think the font they use is ugly, but no one asked me about that. (laughs) The logo they had before the house logo, which kicked in in 1987, from 1970 to 1987... It was the UKIP logo, basically, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a triangle with a pound sign in and a retro pound sign at that with the two crossbars rather than the single crossbar. Yeah, that's worse. I'm not saying that's not worse. I honestly have no problem with the current logo. I don't have a problem with it, but it just doesn't make me feel excited. Well, it's a building (laughs) society. They don't want excitement. 
They want you to feel unexcited but safe. Uh, but I think that is exactly what they're intending, yeah. So I think that's working, isn't it? You're not excited and therefore you feel safe. Here's a question from Josh in Winchester who says, I was looking through old photos today and came across a photo of me and my sister with our heads in one of those boards that you commonly see at the seaside with a painting or a photo of an animal or something on it. Helen, answer me this. Do these amusing things even have a name? Sort of. They have a number of names, but I don't think there's consensus in British English what that name is. Yeah, because most people do just say the seaside thing you put your head through. Right, exactly. Uh, So they are called such things as face-in-hole boards, cutouts, carnival cutouts, comic foregrounds. Comic foregrounds. I bet that's the industry term. Like Blackpool Pleasure Beach gets on the phone. Yeah, we need another comic foreground. Uh, I think that's what the patent was for in... uh, Uh the 1800s. In France, I think they're called tintamaresques. What does that mean? Tintamar means a din or cacophony. Huh. Um, and then in Japanese, they're called karahame, which means insert face, which works for me. That's literally <laughs> what you're supposed to do. Do you resist often? I mean, I find myself, if I'm in a waiting area, especially, and there's one, at some point, I'm going to be doing that. Well, you need someone else, though, don't you? There's no point you just doing it you on do. your own and no one taking a photo of it. I mean, it would be a great opportunity for someone to steal your phone if you said, please take a photo of me whilst I just walk away <laughs> and stick my head through this piece of cardboard that I then can't run after you through. So, yeah, you sort of need someone else just for that reason. A trusted photographer. Yeah. But for you, what's, what's the fun thing about it? Is it replacing your body with something else? The many images of Only Man that could exist? It is. It's also the slight tension between the awkwardness that I feel and usually the sort of positive image that's being created on the other side. Mm. So I'm aware of of other bystanders looking at me, looking awkward, hoping my friend takes the picture quickly, but also I look like, you know, Mr. Bump or whatever I've just put my head through. That amuses me. I read a theory about the evolution of these things as a form of entertainment and how in the 1800s there was a game from about 1820 called The Clothes Make the Man. That could be a Saturday night game show now. Well, you'd have these uh, figures wearing like different clothes that were uh, particular to the era. So you'd have like the king, you'd also have beggars and you'd cut the faces out and change them around. And it'd be like, ah, look how quickly the king becomes a beggar just with different clothes. (laughs) So then uh, these things became a bit of a social satire. And then in 1874, the American artist Cassius Marcellus Coolidge obtained the patent for these uh, although he didn't invent them, but he he did get the pattern. And, and one of the ones he got is like basically like a large book. You can hold up in front of yourself so it looks like you've got a tiny body with your real head sticking out. And uh, he also came up with like a number of other things where like in early photography, you could kind of jazz around with these things. Like it would look like you were sitting on the wing of a plane, but it was really just you sitting behind a board painted to look like that. But what Cassius Marcellus Coolidge became famous for were paintings of dogs playing poker. The, the iconic ones. I know that you said you're not interested in visual art, but those must have cut through even to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I think my parents possibly even had one on the wall at one point. But yeah, I suppose, again, there with the dogs, you've got living creatures behaving in an unexpected way. Yes. Subverting expectations. Like now you do it with photo filters, wouldn't you, on a phone? But it's it's the thing often of taking someone and putting them in the body of someone totally different. Like typically people change gender, they change ethnicity, you know, they become a completely phantasmagorical character. That's part of it, isn't it? Put your face in something totally different to you. That's part of the fun, isn't it? I guess if you believe them to be fun, which I'm not 
fully sure of. Oh, really? What's the doubt? The fun for me is just the anticipation, the prospect of doing that. But the execution and results, little fun. I mean, it's true that those pictures are very rarely the ones that end up above people's mantelpieces. Do you know what I mean? Here's our wedding day. Here's our son graduating from university. Oh, here's that day we had at Bournemouth where you pretended to be a pirate. You're more likely to have a picture of you sitting around having fish and chips than you are that. But at the time, it feels like that's going to be the photo. So in conclusion, is there any one of those names that you think is the one that is slightly more predominant? I mean, you've just read out a list of what it could be. Is there one that, you know, is the name as far as you're concerned? I don't think there's any specific one that is quick to say, but also indicates this exact thing. Yeah. Because cutouts could be all sorts of different things. Comic foregrounds, I think a lot of people wouldn't know what you were talking about. Comic foregrounds, yeah, that's not going to trend on social media these days. You need something briefer than that. Face in hall boards. I like the Japanese one. What was the Japanese one? Kawahame. Insert face. Insert face. Don't trust me on the pronunciation because I don't speak Japanese. You know, we went to the seafront, we bought some rock, we had some fish and chips, we did the insert face, we went and did the... It sounds <laughs> all right. But then what if people thought you had things inserted into your face? You went to the piercing parlour. Yeah. Helen Ollie, answer me this. Don't ridicule me and don't take the piss. Give me a clue to what I'm asking. Then in your awesome knowledge I'll be basking. What's in sound I'm so alone. No one to email. No one to email and no one to phone. Where can I get new friends from? Answer me this Time for a question from Ryan in Melbourne who says, I recognise this issue may be somewhat foreign to you as happily coupled folks, but it's warm down here in Australia and seeking to cast off my broken heart of 2019, I have dedicated myself to seeking out some summer loving. Often a great cure for a broken heart. Helen, answer me this. After you've hooked up with someone, what do you say as you're showing them out? Thank you feels too transactional and maybe a little pathetic, but it's all that comes to mind. Hmm. Well, I suppose one option for you, Ryan, would be to stay over at their house and then it's their problem when you leave. (laughs) Surely it's just, I'd like to see you again. Or if you don't, that was great. Or that was fun, if it was fun or great. That was classic intercourse was the Alan Partridge one, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that'd do well. I suppose if it was neoclassical intercourse, you could uh, talk about that instead. I think maybe bye would be better than thank you. <laughs> no, but I know what he means because if you've if it's a post-coital goodbye, like goodbye can sound harsh. Thank you can sound desperate. You want something that means that was nice and bye. Or you could do something that that they will know is obviously words more suitable for another situation where you're like, well, it was lovely to meet you. <laughs> and uh, that makes it sound more like you've just met at a conference. Uh, But hopefully they would find that funny. Using humour is something that, you know, probably both you and I would do in this situation. But that would depend on the hookup itself having been, I suppose, more traditional. Like maybe you spent the night uh, getting wasted with each other and you were referring to a thing that had happened earlier or a thing that someone had said. If Ryan's using a hookup app and literally has not spoken really to the person that 
he's saying goodbye to is it's harder then isn't it to think of funny things to say well then just kiss them and say bye yeah i put this to uh our friends at facebook.com slash answer me this because i imagine that this is a scenario that many of our listeners uh, encounter Mm. so they've supplied some suggestions quite a lot of them are just variants on handing them a a satisfaction survey or giving them a scorecard (laughs) or one of those things like you have at an airport when you've gone through security and it's like hit the happy face if this was a good experience michael suggests ask them to sign the guest book situated conveniently on the way out (laughs) which is brave that's a good way actually of finding out whether they want you to be in touch with them again i guess so or for them to find out how many visitors you tend to have yes yeah that could be embarrassing in either direction couldn't it a different Ryan suggests, it was great to have met you. I had fun. Although he specifies as long as that's true, of course. What if it's not true, though? How do you deal with it then where it's like, well, that was okay. Well, then I think you'd be like, well, uh, thanks for leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fun isn't that a strong word. So even if it wasn't fun, I think you can say it was fun. You know, unless something really grim happened, in which case, you know, what you say is the least of your concerns, isn't it? But I mean, assuming mm. it was all just sort of like below par, I think you can still say that was fun. David says, thank you for the day. Maybe David's thinking they've had a full day of uh, non-sexual activities. Yes. And then if it's going well, add, text me when you're home. Ooh, bit mumsy. Which quite a lot of them suggested. Really? Uh, Megan said, let me know when you get home safe, because it's polite, but it still conveys that once the other person is home, this is done. Oh, does it? Oh. No, to me, text me when you get home safe suggests that you are interested in... Continuing you know, the conversation. Because you want to see them again. Exactly, yeah. Heather suggests... Well, that was, and then insert appropriate word, usually fun, sometimes interesting. Let's chat soon, okay? And then I'd show them the door. Let's chat soon, okay. Again, that still seems like someone that you're showing out of a business meeting. You might say, let's chat soon, okay? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I today had to return a phone to Argos, and I did say that in the live chat to uh, Secunda. You said, let's chat soon? Yeah. <laughs> Because I knew that I had to first phone BT to ask whether they'd recall the product. (laughs) In a live chat, chat seems like a reasonable thing to refer to. Amanda says, I've had a nice evening. Hope you did too. Yes. Yeah, but you... uh, Yes, yes. That's not bad. But the the point is, what we don't know from this information, because it's contextual depending on the individual, is whether or not Ryan really wants to see that individual again. And that will inform all of these. So I think what's, what's useful is to give Ryan this, you know... Full lexicon of possibilities, and it's up to him to choose the one that's relevant. Well, I feel like it's the hardest one to say something which doesn't suggest, oh, yeah, let's hang out again or let's hook up again. Yeah. Like, what's the middle ground which is polite but not just kind of cold and corporate? That's that's quite hard. A kiss and bye. <laughs> a kiss and bye. If it, yeah. Maybe give them like a cereal bar or something. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun bye. That's what I'd come down to on this. I think that's the best one we've heard. Because I think it leaves it open for you to decide afterwards when the door closes whether you want fun to mean, and so let's definitely see each other again and I'm going to text them, or whether fun just means, you know, that that was diverting, but obviously it's not going to happen again. You can interpret it at will. I feel like the way Ryan has framed his question is that his concern is not what to say in case he wants to see them again. Yes. His concern is merely being polite for a one-night thing. That was fun, bye. Right, that was fun, bye. MJ has suggested, take care and many thanks for the sex. The itching should start in a couple of days. (laughs) I feel like jokes at this time, especially jokes about uh, STIs, probably not the way Mm. to go. But yeah, I agree. Then a lot of people have sex puns like, thanks for coming. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, these are all things that people say on the internet but wouldn't actually say. So we're sticking with the boring yeah. but okay. That was fun, bye. That's mine, anyway. Plus kiss if it's suitable. Don't forget to review. Like and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> Mash that like button. Well, further suggestions are welcome. And we'll ask Ryan to try them out on different people and chart the results and see which is the most effective and least offensive. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. So please supply us with questions for future episodes of Answer Me This. And our contact details are on our website, answermethispodcast.com. And if you want to ask a question in your voice, I would suggest recording a voice memo and emailing it. So would I. As the easiest and clearest. And we'll be back with a retro episode halfway through the month, taken from the vaults. But in the meantime, you can listen to our other works. In March, uh, on my magazine podcast, The Modern Man, I talked to a guy called Nick about internet fraud. Um, what happens when you actually click on a scam email? His dad did that, and he ended up giving £160,000 to criminals. Oh, shit. There's a sting in the tail as well, but no more spoilers. Uh, listen to the interview at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, Helen, what's big in Zoltz world? Illusionist recently did an episode about language around climate crisis, which was very interesting and not completely depressing some useful ways forward and then veronica mars investigations we will be starting season two this month catch up on season one at vmipod.com and the illusionist is at theillusionist.org matting our podcast song by song is a podcast about the music of tom waits uh, we're currently covering the early years volumes one and two which is not his nice gentle early folk period so if you're interested in getting into his music that's a good place to jump in uh, and you can find that at songbysongpodcast.com uh well that was fun bye <laughs> so cold. Where's my cereal bar? Bye. Bye. Bye.